In this episode, we speak with Graham Weaver, founder and managing partner of Alpine Investors, a people-driven private equity firm that invests in software and services businesses. Since its founding in 2001, Alpine has made almost 300 investments and has hired over 60 executives into its portfolio companies. The firm has embarked on eight funds since its inception and it currently has $8 billion in assets under management. It most recently closed Fund 8 in 2021 with over $2.25 billion in committed capital. Alpine was recognized by GrowthCap as a top 25 private equity firm of 2022. Graham founded Alpine based on the belief that exceptional people create exceptional businesses, a people-first philosophy that guides the firm's choices today. When he's not inspiring growth at Alpine, Graham teaches a top-rated strategic management course at Stanford's Graduate School of Business. I'm your host, RJ Lumba. We hope you enjoy the show. RJ Lumba is the managing partner of GrowthCap and the executive chairman of Market Insight Media. He is the host of Growth Investor, a podcast featuring today's best investors, executives, and founders. In the minutes ahead, we'll uncover insights and strategies for accelerating growth and succeeding in business. Graham, so great to chat with you today. It's a delight to be with you. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. You may not know this, but I'm quite familiar with Alpine, have interacted with your firm quite a bit in the past. Where I'd like to kick off is your focus on people and culture. And I want to start there because in my prior roles with Lazard and Merrill Lynch, I was probably one of a small group of people who literally interacted with hundreds of private equity firms. And what I noticed is the quality of your people. This isn't hyperbole. You truly have a distinct type of person that works at Alpine. Tell us about that. I had this sort of aha moment during the financial crisis. So we've been in business at this point about eight or nine years. And like everybody, we were really struggling in the financial crisis. And I had just hired this executive coach, this guy named JP Flum, who I personally think is probably the best coach in the world. And I got lucky. He was my first coach. And we had this conversation where I was like, JP, I can't do our coaching call. You know, I'm just too slammed. It's, you know, everything's going wrong. This recession is killing us. And he said, no, no, you know, our agreement is we do it no matter what every week. So we had our call and said, you know, what's going on that you're so stressed out? And like, have you not seen the news? You know, the whole world's falling apart. It's, uh, and I got to fly to Dallas and fix this problem. And then I got to go to Chicago and I have this other thing I got to deal with. You know, we're about to lose a deal and I got to go to DC because we have another company that's not doing well there. And so he's just like, okay, you know, take a breath, you know, <laughs> calm down. And so he's like, well, tell me a little bit about Dallas. And I start describing, oh, you know, we missed our numbers a second time and the bank projections weren't right, whatever. And he said, well, how would you rate the CEO of that business, you know, kind of A, B, C, D? And I said, why are we talking about that? You know, this is a crisis. Like, this has nothing to do with that. You know, the world's falling apart. And he said, well, just, you know, how would you rate him? And I was like, I don't know. You know, he kind of missed his numbers. He hasn't really had a lot of new business, but, you know, he's from the industry. So, you know, I give him kind of a, you know, maybe B, which the real answer probably should have been C or like or a B minus or something. And then we went and talked about Chicago and it was the same thing. Like, we had just lost a deal and someone from Alpine who was the Alpine person who was responsible for that losing that deal. He said, well, you know, how would you rate them? And the same thing was like a B. So he says, hey, Graham, in our first session, you said you're trying to build the best private equity fund in the world. And are you going to do that with a bunch of B people surrounding yourself? It was like, of course, a rhetorical question, right? And then he asked me a second question. He said, 
And by the way, if you're someone who hires B people, how would you rate yourself as a CEO? And I was just like, oh. And then it was like this light bulb went off. And that light bulb has only grown brighter and brighter and brighter over like the last 13 years since that conversation. And I just realized like we are in the people business. That's the business we're really in. And we can say we're in private equity or we do software services and all that's true. But the fundamental business we're in is the people business. Most folks would hear you say that and truly understand it, but it's easier said than done. And I've actually (laughs) talked to a lot of other fund managers and I talk about Alpine actually. And I say, you should see what they're doing over there. You should get to know some of the folks at that firm. And they try. They try to recruit better. They try to create these cultures. And it's truly unique. And I'll tell you, like well, the first time I interacted with Ramsey Sehun, and he was young. He was like two years yeah. out of school. And I sat down with him and I said, this guy is impressive. And then I would talk to other investors who had interacted with Ramsey and say like, yeah, he's like way better than someone even 10 years out of school. So how do you do it? Can you tell (laughs) us for our audience, if they're looking to create an amazing firm culture, what do you look for when you're- Yeah. Yeah. Well, you asked a couple different questions, but I'd say like, I'll start at a hundred thousand feet and then drill down a little bit. At a hundred thousand feet, my- Number one priority is having a culture where the best people in the world want to work and spend their careers. And I spend my time that way. I spend Alpine's management fees that way. I spend my resources that way. My emotional energy is directed on that. And it starts there. So I'll have a conversation with one of our own CEOs and they'll say, because they know they read all my stuff and they, they know what I want to hear, which is, yeah, really focused on talent and making a great culture. I'm like, okay, great. Let's look at your calendar over the last month. <laughs> you know, how much time did you actually spend? They're like, well, I don't understand the question. You know, HR does that. You know, I was like, well, you just told me it's the single most important thing that you do, and you are spending zero time on it. And they're like, well, that's not the CEO's job. And I said, well, that's your problem right there. You know, it 100% is. And it comes at a big cost, which is you can't say that you're focused on people and then hire great people and then basically micromanage them, give them no responsibility, have them work crazy hours, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you you have to kind of go all in on it. And it's hard. It's really hard because what people want is always shifting. And if you hire amazing people within six months, they want a new responsibility and a promotion. And you multiply that by, you know, a couple hundred people. It's a lot of work. So my advice would be if you're really serious, then the very senior people of the team have to lean in on. Is there one trait in particular that when you see it, you know that person's a lock? If you had asked me that question 10 years ago, I would have said the will to win. And you know that when you see it. And if you're interviewing someone, I mean, you haven't experienced that in the interview, then they probably don't have it. And when you talk to someone that has that will to win, it leaps out and you can't ignore it. So that would probably be my answer 10 years ago, because you have to add a couple criteria as well. It can't just be that. We learned that the hard way. So that is one of them. And then ability to get along well with others is a huge one. We really over-index on that. And then the third one would probably be grit, the ability to just persist through setbacks and failures, because you're going to have them. We're going to give you a ton of responsibility. 
And the downside of that is you're going to fail. <laughs> you're going to have stuff go wrong. You know, you mentioned Ramsey. I mean, Ramsey's, you know, two years out of school or three years out of school and he's talking to CEOs and he's going to have some stuff go really wrong and he's got to have that grit. So those are probably the three criteria that we index on the most. So I ran into Mike Tady a few months ago and your name came up and he had fantastic things to say about you. And then shortly thereafter, your piece came out about being a land warrior. Right. Tell us about that. <laughs> well, just for your listeners who don't know who Mike Tady is, Mike Tady was the freshman heavyweight coach at Princeton when I rode there. He was also at that time, 1992, he made the Olympic team. He was in the 92 Olympic Gate. And then he went on to coach the US Olympic team to a gold medal in, I think it was 2000. So he's an absolute legend. And, and just ask him, he'll tell you. <laughs> but he is incredible. He's kind of one of these people you meet once in a lifetime and you, you know you have met him and you know that RJ if you know, if you know him. <laughs> so he's incredible. So I was a freshman, lightweight, and had a mullet. I was coming right from Ohio. I'd never been in a boat before. Didn't know that you know they even went backwards and tried out for the team. Wasn't very good at all. They had two boats, two freshman boats that they were going to have. And then there's so that's 16 rowers. And I didn't make that list. They posted the boats and they're like, okay, well, if, you, if you're not on these two boats, you're a land warrior. That was the term that they use. And you can use these ergs and here's the time that you can use it, whatever. The next morning after they posted those boats, I got into the boathouse at like 5 a.m. because I, I assumed all these land warriors were going to be in line for these ergs. And of course, no one showed up that day or any other day because land warrior kind of meant you got cut. So that day I go down there and I'm rowing on the rowing machine and this guy comes down and it's just me. The whole boathouse is empty. This guy comes down. He's like six foot three and his legs go all the way up to like his armpits and he's kind of skinny and he gets on the rowing machine and starts pulling harder than I've ever heard anyone pull. And it made this sound that I've never heard it make. And he proceeds to pull that hard for an hour, which doesn't sound like a lot, but like he was pulling like he was going to pull for like two minutes. And then he proceeded to do that for an hour and there's sweat underneath him, like rolling all the way over to my rowing machine. And that was Mike Tatey training for the Olympics. To this day, I think Mike Tatey has one of like the best hour time ever in history, like one of the records for that. And so over time, I'd go down every, you know, every morning and Mike just ignored me, you know, he didn't pay any attention to me. But then after like three or four weeks of me going down there, he's finally, we ran into each other in the locker room and he's like, who the hell are you? <laughs> like, what are you doing? You know? And then I was like, well, I'm Graham Weaver and I'm going to be the best rower in the world someday. And he just kind of rolled his eyes. But then he's like, well, your form sucks. So we got to work on that. And he and I became friends and he wasn't my coach because I was lightweight. He was heavyweight, but we became really good friends. And I've been an admirer of his ever since. Well, um, I'm going to hop around here a little bit and switch over to Alpine and how you grew that firm and evolved it over time. Frequently, building any type of business or firm is not a straight line and you're forced to shift focus here and there, depending on what you learn along the way. Can you tell us maybe about the early days and then how you gradually got into the areas you focus on today? So the early days, we were horrible. <laughs> There's no other way to say it. And that's not false humility. I mean, we were bad. Our first fund, we lost money. 
which is very hard to do and not the way you want to start your investing career. I don't recommend that to your listeners. Thankfully, we had a group of investors who were professional investors who'd started businesses. And so they gave us a shot to have a second fund, which was great. And so we started getting a little better and a little better. And then we just got flattened by the recession. So as we're starting to kind of crawl out and figure our way out, we just got run over by the Great Recession. That turned out to be a really big positive turning point for us because we didn't raise a fund for five years. So we looked internal and we started really doing a lot of work on ourselves. And I remember I looked in the mirror and I said, you know, I'm trying to hold all these CEOs, these portfolio companies to this really high bar. And I look in the mirror and say, well, am I a good CEO? And I didn't like that answer. I didn't think I was. So that was when I hired that coach I mentioned. And we hired a consulting and coaching firm that we worked with for pretty much for a year. And when I say we worked with them, I mean, we were out of the office probably one day a week for a year, which is a ton. And we were going through mission, vision, values, core processes. We did like process mapping, which is still a core part of how we run Alpine. We implemented a continuous improvement process, which is still a huge part of Alpine. And in that process, we really tightened our investment criteria. We got really focused on what we do. And so we basically said, we're going to put our own management team in every single time, which is completely different than probably anyone you've had on the show or will have on the show. They say pretty much the opposite of that. Number one. Number two, we're going to do recurring revenue or reoccurring revenue businesses. And number three, we're going to do you know add-on acquisitions. And we kind of like arrived at that by looking at where we'd had bright spots over the last decade. And those were some of our brightest spots. So we just burned the boats and said, we're only going to do those things. And burning the boats is really, really scary because you've built this whole franchise around X and all of a sudden, you know, it's not that you haven't done Y, but Y has been a small part of your strategy and now it's the whole strategy. So that was really tough. But anyway, that, that was a little bit of the process of how we refine what we do. I noticed also that you are a fan of self-help and it actually shines through sometimes. For example, I remember talking to Ramsey when he went off to do Evergreen and he mentioned his big, hairy, audacious goal. You mentioned burning the boats. And I think it's something you got into early, this area of self-help. Tell us about that. I grew up in uh, Perrysburg, Ohio, which is kind of a blue collar town. And my parents got divorced when I was a teenager and I didn't really have a lot of friends. And I was just struggling, like a lot of teenagers, like many, many teenagers, I was struggling to kind of find my way. And the ground beneath me was shifting and not solid. And so I mowed lawns. That was how I made money back then. And I mowed lawns a lot, like five or six hours a weekend or sometimes even a day. And I started listening to audio cassettes on my Sony Walkman. For some reason, the Perrysburg Public Library had this whole section that said self-help and it had all kinds of audio tapes that I could take out. And the first one I took out said it was Think and Grow Rich, which is a famous book by Napoleon Hill. But I was like, I just the title. I was like, who doesn't want to think and grow rich? <laughs> so I read of that. And then I just became kind of addicted. So you just picture me walking back and forth in the hot sun as a really impressionable 13-year-old listening to people say, set goals. You can do it. You know, you got to have a clear goal. You got to write your goals down every day and then write the sub goals down and then set targets and cross it off. And, and I listened to all this stuff and I did exactly what they told me to do in those audio tapes. And the craziest thing is it worked. Like it worked like amazingly. And so I kind of became into 
self-help and, and really realizing the power we have of our own mind and that we're, at least for me, I was using a small, small fraction of it. And then with some of the things that they taught me, I started to be able to unlock just a lot more of it, which was really fun. Mm-hmm. Thinking about how you went from Princeton to investment banking, business school, private equity, then lecturing at Stanford, what's next? It seems like you've been progressing through your career fairly quickly. And so what excites you now? I love what we're doing at Alpine. You'd think I've been doing this for 21 years that it would start to get the same or monotonous, but I think we're better now than we've ever been. I love the team we work with. I'm as energized about just the core Alpine platform as I've ever been. And it's 100% to do with the people I get to work with every day. I mean, and just watching them grow and develop. And so I'm still having a blast running Alpine. And I think my partners are too. So I think that's what's next in terms of the kind of core part of my life. I still really love teaching. I don't know that I'll probably increase my teaching just because it takes a big toll. (laughs) I throw myself in. 100% into that. And by the time the spring quarter rolls around, I don't teach in the spring or the summer. I'm ready for a a bit of a break. So I'll probably keep doing that. And then what I've been doing that's kind of fun is I've been posting a lot more on social media and I'm writing a blog. I started a blog during COVID and that's been really fun too. So it's kind of taking a lot of the content from Alpine, a lot of the content from Stanford Business School and trying to reach a broader audience. And also I learn a lot I learn a lot creating content, but then I learn a lot from the feedback I get about where people are in their lives and what content they need that could be helpful to them. So that's really fun too. So between all that and three teenagers, it keeps me pretty busy. (laughs) What would you say is the most memorable investment or portfolio company that you've worked with? Oh gosh. So the two that are the most memorable, they're memorable for like almost the opposite reasons. The most memorable is probably we invested in this business made software for slot machines. And at some point, I won't get into all the regulatory stuff on this podcast, but at some point I had to become the CEO of that business or we were, we would have lost our license. So I basically am commuting to Vegas back and forth. And the stuff that goes on in that industry is wild. It is wild. Like, yes, it's highly regulated and it's one of the most highly regulated industries and it is still has this like bugsy 1950s kind of feel to it that it's wild. So, you know, if I said I had 20 just absolutely absurd stories about Alpine that you wouldn't even believe were true, 19 of them came from that one company. <laughs> so that was a wild experience. And I learned a lot too, because I became CEO of one of our portfolio companies and we had a ton of work to do. We had to get licenses. We had customer concentration. There were technology. It was our biggest investment. I mean, it was a lot. So I learned a lot just sitting in the seat of the CEO, which is really, really helpful as I coach CEOs now today. The other memorable one was a shoe company. And I had plantar fasciitis. I was a marathon runner. And plantar fasciitis, if you don't know what that is, it's like, it just feels like someone's stabbing the bottom of your heel. And it's very, very, very hard to get rid of once you get it. And I met this guy at a barbecue and I told him that. And he's like, you know, funny thing, I'm the co-founder of a company that makes shoes that help plantar fasciitis. And I was like, wow. So we ended up having lunch. Long story short, we invest in that company. And that was just a blast because the guy, Bruce Campbell, is one of my best friends now today. He was the guy I met at the party. 
And we just had the best time building that company. Every board meeting, we had a great time. And we really did wonderful things with that product. We helped thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of people with their feet and knee and back problems and and built a really big company. But just the process of doing it was a blast. You know, doing it with some of my really closest friends. So that one was really memorable too. You do seem like someone who works really hard in that you've persisted despite setbacks. What's the toughest thing that you've ever had to do? The hardest period of my life was in high school. I weighed 155 pounds and I was trying to make the varsity wrestling team as a sophomore. I was on the varsity and then a guy dropped down to my weight class and the weight classes were full. Then the only other weight class that was open was at 125 pounds. So I dropped 30 pounds. I was six foot one and I wrestled 125 pounds. Like to give you an idea, I'm six foot one now and I weigh 185 pounds. So 60 pounds less. I was eating about 900 to 1,000 calories a day, which to give you an idea, that's like three bagels. And I did that for almost three years. On top of that, that was a time when my parents had got divorced and I'm working out hard. I'm not eating. I'm trying to be an A student and I don't really have solid ground underneath me. That was the hardest thing I ever did. And yet at the same time, it was one of those experiences where you realize how much you can actually do. I had just not ever experienced the limits and potential that I had. And here was me putting myself through this physical test and surviving and thriving even. And then from then on, I just kind of realized that almost anything that you can tackle you probably have capacity to do it. But but that was by far the hardest period of my life. It was really tough. So yeah, I, w- I wouldn't want to go back and relive it, but I guess it was helpful for me you know, going forward. We're coming up on time. I'd like to ask a couple more questions. It's something we typically ask at the end of our conversations, and I'm sure you'll have great answers for these. One is, could you tell us about a book that had a profound impact on you? Do you want one I'm reading now or do you want one from the past? We could do both. Okay. So one I just finished, this is how I know it's a good book because I just finished it on Audible. And as soon as it finished, I just hit play again to hear the whole thing again. It was so good. And it was called The Surrender Experiment by Michael Singer. And he wrote the book, The Untethered Soul. And both of his books are phenomenal. And I couldn't recommend either book any higher. The Surrender Experiment is his autobiography, really talking about how he surrendered to the flow of life and how his meditation practices really made him present and the adventures he went through as like this kind of enlightened person. And then he just kind of tells you the narrative about what he was thinking and how he was trying to live in the moment. And it's awesome. At least it hit me at the right time when I found like that really, really impactful. So that's the more recent one. In terms of the book that had the biggest impact on my life, I bet no one who's listening to this has ever heard of it, but it was this book called The Universal Laws of Success and Achievement by Brian Tracy. Brian Tracy was the guy I listened to the most back in my teenage years when I was listening to my Sony Walkman, listening to the audio tapes. And really, if you had to summarize Brian Tracy, he's like the expert in setting goals. That's his thing. So he's written some subsequent books, but like the way he just kind of like pounds you with like, you got to get your subconscious working on the stuff you want it to be working on. 
You got to put this stuff out there. You will start to manifest the things you want in your life. You have to write them down. You have to do it every day. And he just pounds that into you. It all came true. All the stuff he said was, was actually completely accurate. I don't think many people do it because it's monotonous and very tedious, but that was incredibly impactful for me. I think a lot of people have certainly read his stuff and don't let on to it because it's. I've heard people say countless times, I got to eat that frog. One of his sayings. That's one of his books, actually. His book titles, Eat That Frog. Yeah. Right. Okay. Last question is, can you tell us about, and maybe you have two answers for this too. Tell us about a leader that you particularly admire, and it could be in any domain or field of expertise. I'll tell you one who I know well and one I've never met. The one that I know well is Irv Grosbeck, and he is a professor at Stanford. He's a legend. He started a really successful cable business and then sold it. And then he devoted the rest of his life to teaching. And he was my professor when I was at Stanford. And then I was a guest in his class for almost 20 years. And then he's the one who invited me to teach at Stanford. And I admire many, many, many things about him as do many, many people who went to Stanford. But the thing that I admire the most is just when you're with him, you're just the most important person in the world. And I'm like someone as successful as that, that he can be so present and just so like humble that he makes you feel that way. It's something that I'll never forget and something hopefully I can aspire to do more in my life. And then the person that I'd never met is probably a cliche answer, but Abraham Lincoln And what I admire about him, and I tell my students this, is like, if you look at the path that he went through and all the setbacks that he had in his life, I read this thing to students where he has like 16 major setbacks in his life, and he just gets right back up every time, pulls himself up, just keeps marching forward. And I think the reason he was the greatest president we ever had was not in spite of the setbacks, but because of them, he realized that he had this core character And he built that over that time, like a muscle. He just built that character. And I don't think there's many people or maybe any people that would have been able to abolish slavery and hold the country together at the time. And he wouldn't have been able to maybe had he not had all those setbacks. So I just always think about that as I'm having setbacks. It's like, what is this teaching me? How is this strengthening me? And that's why I just admired his past so much. All right. Last, last question is... What's the best advice you've ever been given? Best advice I've ever been given. Gosh, there's so many. I'm going to go back to Brian Tracy. I'm pretty sure it was him that had this question he would always ask, which is, what would you do if you knew you wouldn't fail? And he would repeat that over and over. You know, what would you do if you knew you wouldn't fail? And after hearing that so many times, it just got pounded into me that that's your answer. You know, that's always your answer. And if it's not exactly that, it's that direction, or there's a lot of information in your answer to that question. And not only have I tried to always do that thing that is my answer to that question, but that's probably my number one message that I bring when I teach or when I try to mentor people at Alpine is for them to ask that question and then go do that thing. Excellent. Well, Graham, again, really appreciate you taking the time. I know our audience will find this very insightful. RJ, thanks so much for having me. This was a blast. I love your podcast. Congratulations on your success. And thank you so much for having me on your show. 